set the bar so high, I'm going to quote from Jesus. I'm not Jesus, but... Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the side of a mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Is that going to be up there or no? It doesn't matter if it's not. He began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Yeah, there it is. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's pretty good. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because of me. For great, no, it says, uh, I almost had that. Um, it's not for great is the reward, is it? Rejoice and be glad when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets were before you. I probably missed a part. No? That's the word of the Lord. More or less. I almost had that memorized, but I'm going to blame it on my wife texting me the results of my daughter's game. She's playing right now. That was what distracted me. Anybody else getting a text they need to check right now? Actually, one of... Um, a 12-year-old from my church ran away this morning. So I am getting texts about that too. So please excuse me. <laughs> my wife forgot I was preaching here. She just said, we're fighting. She's like, give me all these updates on the game. Okay, that's all right. The Hunger Games. Who's seen it? Who knows about it? Half. It's all the rage. And uh, among teenagers, for sure, my teenagers, I have three of them, are crazy about it. I wondered why. I kind of had a little argument with my daughter. I did read all the books, but I read a lot. And I did go to the movie at midnight with my teenagers. But I argued. I said, uh, it's not very realistic. And my daughter, who's 18, says, Dad, it's a metaphor. I was like, oh, okay. 
And then she said, and it happened in ancient Rome, Nazi Germany, the United States. What? Not, nothing, nothing. So I gave it another chance. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about it, but we're also going to see a little clip. It's, a, it's kind of a dystopian uh, future America uh, that is all under the control of the capital and the impoverished districts scattered throughout the country. The one that the hero Katniss is from is in erstwhile Appalachia, a very poor mining district. So we're going to show a clip and we'll go from there. How about that? So that gives you a little idea of how they choose these impoverished kids to fight to the death for their entertainment. You saw a little bit about kind of the contrast between the districts and the, the capital. The woman from the capital has this outlandish hair and makeup and clothing. And he's still working on that. So I'll just talk a little bit about it. The Kingdom of Panem. Did you catch the, uh, the name of the country? Any Latin scholars among us? Panem. So you can think about that. No Googling. I'll tell you later. The capital controls the districts with its stormtroopers. They call them peacemakers. The emphasis is on makers. You don't want peace? We will make you want peace. The fear and intimidation used in the districts reaches its climax in the Hunger Games, where you saw they pick children. The poorest and most desperate children have the greatest likelihood of being chosen for the, the pageant of the Hunger Games. And we have another clip, Katniss, our heroine. A little clip right there of the lavish food found in the capital and in none of the districts. So, a televised gladiatorial contest kind of sick. It's not the feel-good movie of the year, but it's very well done. Um, sound familiar at all? Well, my daughter already told you. It was Rome in the first century. Yes, they held contests between slaves for the diversion of their overly entertained masses. How did they get the money for those lavish food and games? Anyone know? Yeah. Tribute. These uh, players in the game are called tributes. Uh, yeah, they taxed all of the nations that they conquered, paid tribute to Rome. The famous Pax Romana, Peace of Rome, was gotten through war and intimidation and fear, getting tribute from everyone they had conquered with the food and the wealth that they squeezed out of all their conquered lands, they paid for their lavish lifestyles and the people around sank deeper into poverty. Into the totalitarian regime of Rome comes a single, unwed, teen mom who's nine months pregnant and is forced to go on a long journey 
to Bethlehem. Why? To pay tribute. That's why she was going there. To pay tax to Rome. There she was. And Jesus was born into the muck of a barn under the heel of Rome, laid to sleep in a feeding trough. Jesus, born into a poor family in a disregarded region of an oppressed people, oppressed by the most powerful empire the world had ever known, and he has the effrontery to call himself a king. The king. Just in these few lines that we read today called the Sermon on the Mount, and that part is called the Beatitudes. It's been said that that is kind of King Jesus' platform for his kingdom. And he lays it out there to his followers on the side of a hill, a radically new agenda for his kingdom. He declared it was going to have no end. He declared that all people from every nation and tribe and tongue would recognize it as the kingdom. And he said that it was already started. Sown among his followers. Right there in the middle of that oppression. The nerve, really, it's an outrageous claim that Jesus makes. And it can't be ignored. And whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus or if you're being drawn to consider more deeply what Jesus might mean to you and to the world around you, or whether you're just kind of speed dating the claims of Jesus today here, that's all right. You can't get around the fact that Jesus' kingdom platform is new. It's never been seen. It's not like anything else. Jesus himself calls it a picture of how people can be a part of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That is how he taught his followers to pray. And it wasn't about the normal way of regime change, violent revolt, human ingenuity, but rather it's in living in the ways that Jesus lays out to his followers right now that says the kingdom is ours now, even though it's not fully here and fully recognized. And by the way, if you're speed dating Jesus today, don't base it all on what I say. Come on back. For a second round. Meet some people. When's Mark coming back? Soon. Mark will return. So. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How are we doing? God's kingdom come. God's will be done. On earth, what? I can't believe what he did. 
to his family. You got to be kidding me. Do you ever get sick when you're reading the newspaper? And just, I mean, it's strange. The parts that I am drawn to most in the front page and the region section are the very parts that make me the sickest later. Why is that? Man, that is disgusting. Continued on page eight. Oh, you know, it's like watching a train wreck, you know. She stole how much from the pension fund? Come on. Wait a minute. Where was that kid shot? That's right around the corner from my house. I can't stand it. I don't want to read this anymore. Twin Rivers School District? Wait a minute. I know that guy. He's stealing the newspaper. It can be rough. Why is it that we're drawn to that kind of news? I don't really know. I'm just going to let that hang there. I, I have a little idea. Maybe it's because we want to be with someone. We want to agree with someone. Don't you do that a little bit? When you're reading the paper, uh, you kind of you want someone else to say, this is bad, right? This is icky. I mean, come on. This is, or, oh, puppies, that's cute. Isn't that cute? You know, we want to kind of agree with someone. It's a touchstone. It's like how we find our balance. And if we ever decide to cry out to God, wouldn't we say, this is not how it's supposed to be, is it? If anyone's up there, you, friend, neighbor, this isn't, this isn't how the world is supposed to be. I think a lot of times, breaking news speaks of the brokenness of our world. And there's a lot of reasons for that, ratings high among them. Look at how the world is broken. If we examine the world honestly, we will see just how broken it is. Our propensity for pain and struggle is not how it's supposed to be. And Jesus sits on the side of a mountain and says, no, it's not how the world is supposed to be. There is another way. And there's so much in those few lines of Jesus. We're just going to focus on the kind of the overview and the first, the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What do you think? Quick, is there a difference between the poor and the poor in spirit? Yes, there is. But... I'm going to say today that I think our culture jumps a little far and a little fast all over that. And I'm going to suggest that maybe the materially poor in our culture, in our world, can teach us a little something about what it means to be poor in spirit. Can we admit that the downtrodden, 
materially poor and oppressed people of the world may have a head start in teaching some of us who might be a little more comfortable what Jesus means when he says the poor in spirit. Sometimes we can kind of quickly spiritualize stuff and we forget that the very first thing Jesus said in his public ministry was, I have come to preach good news to the poor. It's a little harder to spiritualize that one. So we're going to talk a little bit about what my daughter says is a metaphor. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Panem to help us see what is it like to be poor. You know, most of the world knows throughout history and even today. Some famous quote said, life is poor, nasty, brutish, and short. I didn't write down who said that, but I remember it from college. Philosophy. You remember that? I see people kind of... Anyway, that was a famous quote. What is it like to be poor? Katniss comes from Appalachia, plagued by poverty. Here's a quote from the book. It's a coal mining region. The men and women had hunched shoulders, swollen knuckles. Many who have long since stopped trying to scrub the coal dust out of their broken nails and the lines of their sunken faces. These people are broken and hungry. And Katniss says, District 12 is a place you can starve to death in safety. Most of the districts face these kinds of hardships. And by contrast, the capital is a place of excess. I had a couple of other clips I wanted to show, but technical difficulties with me. Um, they've got bullet trains, tall buildings, shiny cars, and here's a quote, oddly dressed people with bizarre hair and painted faces who've never missed a meal. The capital has everything especially food. They have incredible feasts with drink that you take at the end so you can throw up and have some more. Does that sound familiar? That's what they were doing in Rome. Or maybe your fraternity. I don't know. No? <laughs> I heard about it. Um, the capital is described as a place where people surgically alter themselves to appear thinner or more fashionable. Hmm, okay. The metaphor is not perfect, but I can see some similarities. In the districts, people starve. In the capital, they spend money on body modifications like dyeing their skin green or implanting cat whiskers on their faces. That could be next. In District 12, Katniss says, if you see an elderly person, you want to congratulate them on their longevity and ask them the secret of their survival. A plump person is envied because they aren't scraping by like the majority of us. I was in China in the 80s, and I remember the, the, the language uh, translation for a large person uh, was strong. That was the, the um, adjective that was used. And some of my Chinese friends told me, well, it wasn't too many years ago that a lot of people here were starving to death. So when you have a large person, they're strong. The capital says to the districts, we can take your children and sacrifice them and you can't do a thing about it. 
Oppression crushes hope in whatever way it can. Through lack of resources, denial of freedoms, threat of violence. This is Katniss's world in the Hunger Games and the world Jesus, the king, steps into in Rome. And what about our world? I have a friend from the Congo in their eastern mining districts. They found precious minerals needed for high-end technology for laptops and smartphones and the like. And the families there live in fear because of terrorist groups that are vying for control. Whatever governments come and go there, one thing's for sure, people are always taking their stuff and not letting them have it. That can be tough on a people. The stories can be repeated all over the world. Julie Clausen wrote a book called The Hunger Games and the Gospel, Bread, Circuses, and the Kingdom of God. Here's a quote. We live in a broken world where injustice and oppression are the norm, a world where children are kidnapped and forced into slavery, where some women risk having acid thrown in their face every time they dare to show up at school, where a mom can work two jobs and still not be able to afford nutritious food or health care for her kids, where every 3.6 seconds someone dies from lack of food. Our world is much like Panem. In Panem, where the wealth and comfort of the few in the capital is provided through the oppression of the districts, where having the latest toys, instant everything, and the fashions of the moment at the cheapest possible rates are more important to some than the lives of the people who suffered to supply them. Such a world obviously is not a realization of God's dreams. So that blended in there. She was talking about the United States, and then she talked a little bit about Panem. But it kind of blended a little bit. Any Latin scholars who Googled it? What does Panem mean? It means bread, kind of like Spanish, pan. It means bread, panem, bread. Juvenal was a Roman satirist who coined the phrase bread and circuses. It's kind of a counterpoint to Pax Romana. Pax Romana, the enforced peace of all the conquered people, kind of peace at the edge of a spear, was how Rome controlled all her enemies, all her subjugated people. How did Rome control her own people? Bread and circuses. Bread was kind of a political idea they came up with to give free bread to people. It's kind of like, it's the economy, stupid. Right? In an election year, some of these phrases. Uh, if people are eaten and happy and economically sound, then they're great. What about circuses? Rome is kind of known for their entertainments. And the people, it was seen as a soporific to kind of placate the people. Uh, let, them, let them eat cake and let them go to, I know I'm mixing my uh, centuries, but uh, let them go to the Colosseum and see these... Uh, 
horrific entertainment. Some people said they couldn't watch the Hunger Games because it's so ridiculously violent and crazy and off the wall. And hopefully uh, that's the idea, that we don't want to see stuff like that. Plenty of food and entertainment to distract them. So how are we doing here? We're among the wealthiest, healthiest, most powerful people ever to exist in human history. Does our consumerist lifestyle come at a price? And if so, who pays? Where do our luxury items come from? Who grows our food and picks it? Who sews our clothes, puts together our iPhones? iPhone girl, you guys know that? The picture of the one from the factory that got into the iPhone and went viral. You guys are way more up on stuff than I am, but I, I'm not catching on. Okay, iPhone girl, Google it later. Um, you know, what is behind the stuff that we consume? Are these questions that we want to be asking even? We don't have to. We have any number of circuses that we can get to at the touch of a button. We certainly are a culture obsessed with being entertained. Even our news is kind of sensationalized. You know, the, remember the tsunami and the earthquake, for example, um, in Haiti, and Katrina, for that matter, uh, dominated the news for several weeks. And then everything got fixed perfectly. Yeah. So, not, mu not much on those things now. But the, the rebuilding in Haiti, you know, barely started. But that's kind of our news cycle, right? We just hear about it for a while. And we help and we send money and we, our heart goes out and we send groups and we, we go and we roll up our sleeves. But I think that our culture is pretty isolated from the suffering of the world. We can even be isolated from the suffering down our street. How might that isolation contribute to the world's brokenness? What could we be missing out on? I think Jesus gives us an opportunity to begin to get to the end of ourselves. It's not easy in our comfort-saturated culture you know, maybe our comfort makes us feeling rich, makes us feel like we're rich in spirit. So by contrast, are we missing out on a, a blessing there? We might feel like we have spiritual resources in our, our intellect, our tradition, our experience, our own strengths. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who have reached the end of their rope are blessed. If you think you have things pretty well wired, you might have an extra long rope and you might, it might take you a while to get to the end of it. But that's why we have confession. Right, Nick? Wherever you are. That's why we do that here. It reminds us. It's a touchstone. It's much better than the newspaper as a touchstone. It reminds us that the brokenness that, that's everywhere in the world 
goes deep inside of us. And we're in desperate need, not of some advice, not, of, not for um, anything other than a Savior who died for us as we reach the end of ourselves, Jesus offers us a chance to wake up from our kind of bread and circus-induced coma and recognize that Jesus' kingdom is not a flashy takeover and it's not a flash in the pan. It's kind of a, a long obedience in the same direction with slow ways and small steps in the middle of the pain and brokenness. Jesus told the poor in spirit that the blessings of the kingdom were already theirs because of his sacrifice on the cross. And he invites his friends on a hillside and every one of us, no matter where we are, into a life where people can care for each other's needs because of that sacrifice. Because we know who we are, deeply flawed and incredibly loved. And then we can enter into a new way of living that flips everything upside down. A blessed way of life where all neighbors are treated as brothers and sisters. We like to say around Bridge of Life that we all are truly in the same boat. And the implications for that are deep. And it's hard for many of us who've kind of used to having it all. And no matter where we are in our understanding or interest in Jesus... The temptation is there to reach inside of ourselves for our strength. Jesus offers us the chance to reach to him. He invites us to the scene of his humiliation and his victory, the cross. And his death on the cross allows us to follow him to the end of ourselves into a new way of living so that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. God, it's hard to see your hand at work sometimes in the brokenness of our world. Would you show up? Would you show up through our relationships? Bring friends into our lives who are going to speak the truth of your gospel to us. Show us the truth of your word by the power of your spirit, God. Help us to reach the end of ourselves so that we be can begin to open our eyes to the brokenness and pain that's all around us and that we contribute to. And God, open our eyes to the incredible cosmos-changing love that you have 
for even me, for each one of us. So much so that you invite us to join you in the transformation of this world. Thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.